Hello, I'm Naomi, and welcome back to another episode of LSHTM Viral. As cases surge towards a million infections worldwide with over 50,000 deaths, today we speak to Professor Dan Bausch. Dan is a physician and virologist who specializes in the research and control of emerging tropical viruses with over 25 years experience worldwide. He is also the director of the UK Public Health Rapid Support Team. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Naomi. On behalf of LSHTM, you were a signatory to the new COVID-19 Trials Rapid Response Group, which was published in Lancet last night. And this includes world-leading health figures and organizations like Jeremy Farrar from the Wellcome Trust, Trevor Mondell from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and many more. What is this group and why is it necessary? Naomi, it's a group of various different institutions that really provides a framework for doing clinical research against COVID-19. And so what I mean by that is it's not necessarily, it's not one study or one group of investigators, but it identifies some of the key elements that we need in order to move research forward across the world, basically, because this is a worldwide problem, to get the right answers for the right therapeutics, medicines, vaccines, diagnostics, COVID-19. And the, the group lists four aims. What are these four aims and can you tell me a bit about them? So as you say, there, there are four. The, the first is to facilitate the rapid and joint protocol reviews by ethics committees and national regulatory agencies, as was done for Ebola vaccine trials. And, and so what I, we mean by this, mentioning the Ebola vaccine trials, what we saw, especially in the big outbreak in West Africa a few years ago, is that by not having the frameworks in place, we were very slow in putting the studies in place because we were figuring out at the beginning of an epidemic, where do we go to, to get the right ethics approvals? Who are the partners that need to be engaged? And so this framework in general is one that will allow us to work out these details in the beginning. I mean, we're, we're of course already into this, but as rapidly as possible and then not be too late. And what we've seen in other outbreaks is if we don't do this very early on and create these frameworks, then by the time we work out of the details, we're too late to do the studies and we can't get the right answers. The second of the four aims is to facilitate approvals for the importation of study medications and materials, and we need to fast track this. And this is especially challenging right now because what we're seeing across the globe is a very fractured supply chain. And so what I mean by that is, of course, normally we depend on air travel and different types of freight to move not only the things that we count on every day and food and those sorts of things, but we count on those in the biomedical field to move the medications and the materials and the vaccines and the right cold chain, freezers, the agents, all the things that we need to do these trials. That, that supply chain right now is very fractured. And so we need to collectively come together to try to put that in some semblance of normalcy to that in order to conduct trials. The third aim is to ensure the standardized and simple collection of key data. The, the importance of this is that we need to have a robust analysis. And what I mean by robust analysis is that we need to have the right numbers of, for example, people that are involved and engaged in a trial of a drug or a vaccine. And then we need to collect those data in a systematic way so that we can test and assess not only the efficacy, does that vaccine or that drug work, but also the safety and, and make sure that we're not doing harm. And in order to do that, you need to have standardized databases that everyone records data in the same way. If you have one group 
very simply put, recording it on sort of one form that they've put together and another group on another form. When you try to electronically merge that and make sense of it, it gets quite difficult. And then the fourth aim of this is to provide a governance framework so that we can share the outcomes before publication. Important scientific publication, of course, the, the publications go through peer review. What we mean by that, if you have a paper that you want to publish, you send that to a journal, they send it to reviewers to make sure that is the sound is science and come back and say, fix this and redo that. And that's important, but it takes time. We need to, in these particular cases with epidemics or pandemics, we need to have a framework for sharing data even before we can go through that relatively lengthy procedure. And that takes governance and agreements in the, in the front end in order for everyone to do that. Thinking of the WHO Solidarity Trial, which was announced a few weeks back and is an international study of potential COVID-19 treatments worldwide, how do these two collaborations fit into each other in the pandemic response? They're certainly complementary. So the WHO Solidarity Trial is one trial of four drugs. This is a trial taking drugs that we already know of, that we already have an idea of their safety. Some of them are drugs usually used for HIV or for the treatment of malaria or various things. And so we know the drugs, they're not new ones that have never been into humans before, but they, there's some evidence from the laboratory, at least, that they may have activity against the COVID-19 virus. And so that's a specific trial to look into those drugs and how they might be used uh, against this new virus. But that's just one trial. So there are many other things. It doesn't, for example, touch upon vaccines. There can be other new drugs that are developed. And many groups, of course, are looking into new drug development for COVID-19. So the, the solidarity trial is one thing that's going on, but we're gonna to need to look beyond that and the many different options for therapeutics and vaccines and diagnostics and other things as this pandemic progresses. The COVID-19 Trials Rapid Response Group, in the article, it's, it's looking at about, pulling together about 600 different trials that are currently ongoing, is that right? Yeah, that's right. The trials are currently ongoing. That number is increasing daily, and that's a good thing, but that's really underscoring the reason for such a framework. But because as you can imagine, what we don't want to have is just 600 disparate trials across the globe without being able to make sense. And, and then we have to recognize that the scientific world is that trials can tell us different things depending upon how the trial is done, who did the trial, what the population was that was engaged in the trial. Again, the need for a framework to really make sense of this and coordinate this across diverse regions and, and groups. You were extensively involved in the Ebola response in West Africa from 2013 to 2016 and the more recent outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. In terms of international support for low resource settings and overstretched healthcare systems during an outbreak, what lessons can we take from those experiences for the COVID-19 pandemic? There are many, but um, I'll, I'll cite two. And the first one is a, a very positive lesson, I have to say. So if you look at the most recent epidemic of Ebola in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and we were really just a short time away, we hope that we can declare that outbreak over. Now, there's been incredible progress in developing therapeutics and vaccines and to an extent diagnostics. And so that's based on creating this sorts of, these sorts of research frameworks that you know, we, we saw what we got wrong collectively, if you will, in the large outbreak in West Africa. And as I mentioned earlier, 
studies that we couldn't get in place in time. By the time we, we said, okay, now we have the drug here, we have the cold chain, and we have the, the trained personnel, and we have the ethics committee approval, and the protocol, and everything's ready to go. We were too late that there were no more patients who had Ebola. And that's great, of course, we don't want patients who have Ebola, but if there are patients who have Ebola, we want to have the trials in place because these sorts of epidemics or pandemics these are emerging diseases. We basically only see them in epidemic or pandemic form. And so we have to learn as much as we can. We've been able to, in the DRC, Democratic Republic of the Congo outbreak, put in place the learning that was from previous outbreaks and false starts, if you will, and rapidly get trials for therapeutics. And so now we have evidence of two drugs for Ebola, for example, that there's sound evidence for them decreasing mortality. We have a very good vaccine that has recently been licensed for Ebola. We have another vaccine that is under study. And so, you know, some of the lessons that we've learned have really paid off and, and borne fruit from West Africa, have borne fruit in the activities in Democratic Republic of the Congo and Central Africa. The other lesson I think that we still need to learn and really optimize is that whether it's a regional outbreak of Ebola or something on a smaller scale, or whether we're talking pandemic that involves the entire globe, it really ultimately comes down to the community's response. And so it's important that the, the expertise of people from the London School, from our group, the UK Public Health Rapid Support Team, from WHO, from the different institutions around the world, important that they provide technical support and strategic guidance, but what really stops outbreaks comes down to local communities. And I, and I think once we engage local communities as partners, they understand the battle and then they take the battle to heart. And as they become partners, then we get true behavior change and, and to, true participation. And that's really what stops outbreaks. And I think we've seen that in the Ebola outbreaks. It's challenging in communities where there can be baselines of civil unrest as we have in Democratic Republic of the Congo. And, but I think looking at this COVID-19 pandemic, that will be one of our challenges in making sure that communities understand the, the threat that we're facing and are a partner in the response, not appear to be adversaries. With COVID-19, this is a global issue. So in terms of these communities you're talking about, it's it's almost all communities around the world. It's all local level organizations which have different social structures and attitudes. How can we tackle that? So I think one of the important things is it's about trust. And so the, the governments and international agencies need to be agents of trust that a community looks to to provide the right information. The, there are advantages and disadvantages or challenges to doing that in this age. So the lines of communication, are, of course, can be quite broad. We're in the age of social media. You can look up COVID-19 in 10 seconds on the internet, and depending upon what you want to look for and what you want to find, you, you can find um, very well-documented, evidence-based publications that tell you where this virus came from and the science around it, and you can find conspiracy theories and many other things and evidence of clinical trials that are ongoing that may tell you what is the right drug to take for this and other people who will claim, you know, make wild and unsubstantiated claims. And so really we need to make sure that governments and other international agencies are seeing 
that we're providing evidence-based counsel that people can trust. And when we do that, then they trust the other elements that come from government and from international agencies. They trust the, the public health messages and what needs to be done in terms of, for example, the lockdowns, the physical distancing, the hand hygiene. So it really comes down to, to making sure that we are sticking always to the evidence, that we're communicating that in a, in a clear, understandable way to the communities and other populations that we serve. And I think if we can do that, again, we bring the communities into the process as a partner, and that's the formula for success. Thinking of some of the varied responses that governments are having to the pandemic, how does the international community and groups like the COVID-19 Trials Rapid Response Group find the balance between respecting the autonomy and independence of different nations, but still support evidence-based global efforts to truly end this pandemic? It's a, it's a difficult challenge. On one level, of course, countries are our sovereign nations, and so we can't control no agency, not the United Nations, not WHO. There, there's no one who can force a government to say anything or do anything if that sovereign nation does not want to do it. But I can, and again, this is one of the advantages of the, the communication age that we live in, that's very difficult to completely control the messaging. So people can go outside of governments and outside of some of the traditional communications in many places at least and, and try to get the information that they need. All, all we can do again is I think stick to an evidence base that can be implemented and when it comes down to the clinical trials, making sure that clinical trials are done in the to the highest scientific standards, that we communicate those results in the clearest way and the most honest way. And that's about you know all that we can control. Those may or may not happen in all countries, we, we can set standards and say, if you want to participate in a trial, that these are the standards that one has to maintain. There, there could be a degree of influence there because of course, in, in this particular case, not necessarily true for Ebola, but for COVID-19, all countries would like to see the benefits or be the beneficiaries of these trials. There may be, and I'm not saying that we would withhold drugs or there's the ability to withhold drugs or vaccines from any given population. That's not what I mean to say. But nevertheless, of course, if you're part of the process, part of the trial and part of the community that is searching for the solution, then you're going to be kind of on the ground floor, if you will, in terms of accessing and benefiting from that solution. So there, there can be some leverage from actors that maybe are outside of the evidence base. That's an interesting point because in the article it discusses that part of this collaboration is specifically to support low resource settings who might not necessarily have the capacity to contribute financially or resource-wise to these clinical trials. So what's the perspective on supporting vulnerable populations in low resource settings? Extremely important, in part because although COVID-19 is, of course, a global problem, this is a, a true pandemic where, in my view, you know, very few corners of the earth will escape being touched by this. And we unfortunately think that low and middle income countries may ultimately be particularly vulnerable and the cost of human lives as well as other illness and suffering may be particularly difficult there. So we do need to make sure that ethically that we are incorporating our partners 
in those countries into this process, not only for right now, but also building the capacity. It's hard to, for any of us to fathom right now, but you know, at some point we will get beyond COVID-19. This virus may stick around, but we won't be in a pandemic state forever. But And there will be other things that will happen. There will be other respiratory viruses and flu viruses and Ebola viruses and, and other things like that. And so we need to look at this for the long term and building capacity with our partners in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Latin America, Southeast Asia, you know, around the world. And, and recognizing that the, the idea I hope is now considered passe by most people, but the idea that you know, we don't have to care what happens in some remote corner of the earth that or at least seems remote to us, that's certainly no longer true. And, and COVID-19 is the obvious example of that. And so even if you've never heard of Wuhan, China a few months ago, you've certainly heard of it now. And even if you'd never heard of Ebola or Sierra Leone or Guinea or Liberia a few years ago, you heard of them now, and because we're recognizing the connectivity of our planet, you know, really cannot be overestimated. That an outbreak, a virus, a pathogen in one particular corner of the world ultimately can affect everybody, either directly from spread of the virus and disease, or indirectly. We're seeing that even people who don't have COVID-19 and hopefully will never have COVID-19 are still feeling the very significant global impacts in terms of economic impacts and uh, the mental health impacts and of lockdowns and the challenges that we all have in dealing with this on a day-to-day -day basis now. So we are really truly all in this together. That really requires us to recognize that. And then coming back to the research side, we need to make sure that we're all participating in this together and provide opportunity and build capacity because uh, it, it will be important for us to have a, a collective front in this challenge. So ultimately, where do you see the pandemic going and how key will these international collaborations be in that future? As, as I mentioned, Naomi, I do see COVID-19 will touch most corners of the earth. There may be a few remote islands and things like that that will not be touched it might not always be to the same extent or severity. And so we, we're seeing you know, large waves in some countries right now, certainly in the United States. Other countries are seeing smaller waves. We may have numerous waves. So I, I think that no country should think that they are immune from this. That does not mean that the sky has to fall or every, everyone is collectively trying to figure out what's the best way to control this that needs to be adapted on a very local or regional level, at least, you know, what might need to happen in the United States or Italy or Switzerland is not the same necessarily that has to happen in Ethiopia or Uganda or the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Each, each country is different and the dynamics are different. But I do think that we will see widespread transmission. So we need to think of that. We need to be in this for the long haul. This is not a sprint. This is a marathon. That doesn't mean that um, all countries will be locked down for a year, but it means that we're going to have to think about this and recognize that we won't be going back very soon to normal life. We may hopefully get beyond some of the most acute periods in different countries where extreme lockdowns are in place. We, we hope to as rapidly as possible be able to lift those, but it won't be going back the day that a lockdown is over, for example. It won't be going back to just normal life. It's, it's going back to 
um, some more controlled behavior and to make sure that we don't give this virus an opportunity to continue to do damage. So again, the way to do that as we come out of the most acute periods, we have to recognize that we are again all connected that, for example, I'm speaking to you today from Geneva, Switzerland. So what Switzerland does is going to have impacts on what its neighbors do and vice versa. And so it's something that Italy and uh, Austria and Germany and France and Liechtenstein and the countries around Switzerland, as an example, are going to have to work together. And then again, coming back to this research international collaboration, that we're going to have to work together on those fronts to find the best ways to deal with this for not only therapeutics and vaccines, but also what are the most effective ways of messaging for behavioral change to encourage healthy habits to keep this virus at bay. Thank you for all those insights, Dan. Thank you. Our supporters are coming together helping us plug critical gaps in our understanding of COVID-19 by giving to our response fund. Find out how you can help us make a difference in the global fight against the pandemic by visiting lshtm.ac.uk/support. And for those of you from my side of the pond, that's lshtm.ac.uk/support. Link in the bio. Don't forget to subscribe to LSHTM Bio on your favorite player and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.